and welcome to Bushwalker's Diary podcast season 2 episode 2. I know it's been a while since we have said hello to you guys but today I'm bringing a very adventurous person in our uh, episode for you guys to share and enjoy her stories. So welcome Wendy Brewer. She's a climber, canyoner and also a hiker and recently she has published a book called More Than It Hurts. So let's welcome Wendy. Hey Wendy, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Kaveta? Very good. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for having today. me. And how are you these days? How did you enjoy the new year so far? It's it's been good. It's pretty quiet. It's I've been watching the news in the last few days, obviously, with the US. That's I agree. I yeah. Agree. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. I know. And I, have you been working or having a time off? I've been working, but I work from home, so that's pretty straightforward. I was going to be travelling in Tasmania, but obviously the resurgence of COVID in Sydney cancelled that trip. However, my partner and I are about to head out to the snowy mountains to hike Kosciuszko to Kyandra. Oh, wow. How exciting. You're yeah. always up to something. Uh, really <laughs> enjoy you. seeing your pictures and uh, your adventures. Thank you. So, uh, Wendy, would you like to introduce yourself to our audience? Uh, just tell us about how did you get, get into climbing and what other sports do you enjoy? And tell us a little bit about yourself, please. Okay. I had... I'd been interested in climbing for a long time. So when I was in my 20s, I'd been to indoor climbing gyms a few times, once or twice outside, and it was always a sport I wanted to properly take up rather than just doing it ad hoc occasionally. But I travelled a lot for work in those days, so I was often overseas for extended periods of time, and so rock climbing was always one of those one-day things. And then I got a deployment in Jordan. I knew I was going to be working in Jordan for at least six months. And I'd heard there was rock climbing there and a really good rock climbing community. And I thought, well, if I'm ever going to do this, I have to do it sometime. So when I get there, I'm going to find the climbers, make friends with them and see if I can become a rock climber. Nice. And work-wise, were you working outdoor work or something desk job? Um, I was working with UNICEF around the Syria refugee crisis. Wow, that, that's pretty impressive. Something good for the community. Yes, it's something very different. It was, as you can imagine, a fairly high-stress job and pretty intense. So the rock climbing was, was great. Rock climbing was probably the only time I ever really switched off in Jordan because when you're climbing, it's so meditative and you have to be focused on what you're doing. And I found that was some days that was the only way to de-stress. I agree. And because you're, ba are you based on Sydney? Yeah. Uh, yes, yes, currently based in so, Sydney. Currently based on Sydney, just for our audience purpose. So when you said uh, you climbed in Jordan, how would you compare the climbers and the sport itself in Jordan as compared to Australia? 
It seemed that it was only really taking off in Jordan. So there was a lot of crag development. The community was really tight-knit and very, very welcoming. I got into climbing. I basically met, uh, met a guy who, he actually ran an outdoor adventure company and I joined, signed up for a canyoning trip. I asked if they did any rock climbing, had any rock climbing trips or anything like that. And he said, no, they didn't have any, any formal rock climbing trips organised, but he and his friends were going outdoors next weekend. So if I wanted to join them, just come along. And so, that sounds very welcoming. <laughs> it was extremely welcoming. And I'd find there you'd go to, the, there was an indoor climbing gym in Amman, the capital, and I was based in the capital. And you'd go to the gym there and you'd basically know everyone there. And if you didn't, you could just go and say hi. I had a friend who, when she wanted to climb, instead of even necessarily finding a partner, she'd just go down to the gym and see who was there. And even if she didn't actually know anyone, she'd just go and introduce herself to people and join them. And you yourself are a very outgoing person, I know that. <laughs> I, I didn't quite do that. But yeah, it was quite easy to meet people. And once I knew people who climbed, like I said, very welcoming and invite, they'd invite me to join them and, and include me in their trips. Great, thank you. And what kind of climbing do you do? Track climbing or just a sport climb? But what do you prefer? Mostly sport climbing. I've done a tiny bit of track climbing, but mostly just mixed routes where I have to place just a handful of pieces of gear. And I'm actually holding the book uh, recently <laughs> written by you. I had a great time actually enjoying uh, working with you on the cover uh, page. I'm really quite impressed. Have you told the audience here that you were the designer for the cover? I haven't yet. <laughs> so, um, so Kavita was our superstar designer who on very short notice <laughs> turned around a very impressive cover for the rock climbing book. Uh, and uh, so Wendy Brewer here has written a book with Emily Small, uh, which I'm holding, guys. Uh, it's called More Than It Hurts. It's uh, stories of uh, women adventuring in, into the climbing and mountaineering world. I would suggest you get one copy for yourself or even as a gift for the people around you. It's quite inspiring. I have read the uh, book cover to cover and I was quite impressed with some of the stories. Uh, thanks, Wendy, for uh, uh, providing me a, an opportunity to share this experience with you now. Thank you. Smaller scale. And so the, bo the book is an anthology. We've got stories from 14 different women. I'm actually including one non-binary author, I should say. Um, so not technically all women. And, the, and Emily and myself, who are the editors and who compiled the anthology, we both have stories in the book too. And the stories cover all sorts of experiences and very different levels of experience. There's climbers who are, there's one woman wrote her story about going out to climb the nose in El Capitan, but there are also climbers who've probably never led anything harder than a 17 or 18 in the book. So it's not about people bragging about how good they are or what they've achieved. It's all very personal stories and experiences and how climbing has changed them or what they've learned or grown from it or just people having funny stories and adventures. So very, very relatable stories, I think. And how did you come about writing a book like this? It was an idea I'd had for a while, but I guess there was never a great time to do it. 
But then under the COVID restrictions, uh, when they started early last year, I thought, well, if I can't go outside to climb, now is maybe an excellent time to focus on a project that I can do sitting at home at my desk. And I also thought that perhaps lots of, lots of other people would have extra time to write. And part of my inspiration for the story was also lots of what I'd read about rock climbing and mountaineering, lots of the books I'd read about that were about men. And, you know, they were great, loved those books, but I always really wanted to read more about women. And there was just seemed a lot less of that out there. So basically I wanted to put together the kind of book that I personally wanted to read. I agree with you mm -hmm. on that. And I'm really glad to have another book uh, more full of uh, stories. Well, we, we hope everyone will read it. We've had some good feedback from men who've read it and really enjoyed it as well. Because when I also go to climbing gym or outdoor climbing, I see there are always a lot more men than women. Mm. So I just find it's more inspiring for women to hear about stories from not just strong climbers, as you yourself mentioned, but also from regular people who probably have never stepped into a gym before. Mm. Yeah. How did uh, the journey, uh, during the journey of writing this book, uh, what were the some of the lessons would you like to share with the audience uh, you had or what kind of experience did you have? I think to start with, my I thought it was just going to be this sort of quite little project. I thought we'd get a bunch of, you know, a bunch of stories, put it together in an e-book, you know, give it a rough edit and at some point, you know, put it up on I don't know, Amazon or, you know, self-publish an e-book and sell it for a few dollars a copy. But, and I was also working with Emily Small, who was the founder of the women's rock climbing group, Climb and Wine. Um, and initially I'd sort of said to Emily, you know, I'll, I'd like to do this as a Climb and Wine project, but you won't have to do anything. It'll be easy. I'll do everything. You'll just have, you know, some minor role to play. And Emily's like, okay, sure, go ahead. Um, and then we started getting all these amazing stories coming through. And Emily said, well, hang on a minute, I think we should be publishing this in a hard copy mm -hmm. and we should be asking shops to stock it. So Emily, um, yeah, sort of led the way on that. She's really well connected throughout the whole climbing community. And before you know it, we had sponsors, we had a plan to publish it, and we had quite a few shops saying they were happy to stock it. So now the book is in wow. Paddy Pal what is it? Paddy Palin, Climbing Anchors, Mont, Mountain Equipment, uh, and a bunch of climbing gyms through Sydney. We've also I'm trying to remember now, we've also had a couple of independent bookshops request copies and some of the shops sold out quite quickly and ordered more copies really soon. I think climbing anchors they initially ordered 20 and sold out on their first day. So they've had to, wow. <laughs> they increased the volume <laughs> of the orders and have had two more orders since then. So it's been amazing. We've been really excited that people have enjoyed it and that everyone's been as excited about it as we are. And it was great for me working with someone like Emily, who, even though I'd initially tried to I'd been sure that, you know, it would be quite a manageable project. But, of course, with anything like this, it just escalates and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. 
so it ended up taking over both our lives for quite a while. Wow, and how wonderful is that <laughs> that you all sold out on first day in climbing yeah, anchors? We're really excited <laughs> about that. And climbing climbing anchors are one of our sponsors, and they've been so supportive, and I think have been you know really passionate about selling it and having it on display where people can see it and letting customers know about it, which is amazing. That really sounds wonderful for our audience. Uh, you guys know where to reach out if you want your own copy. And uh, would they be able to buy it online, yes. uh, Wendy? Yes, Climbing Anchors, Paddy Pallon and Mont definitely all still have copies at the moment and Mountain Equipment might. Perfect. And uh, during this journey, how do you feel now from just a small seed and an idea to seeing it in your hands, a copy of the book. And how does the whole experience make you make, made you feel? Okay, I'm actually, so the, I'm going to talk about one of the stories in the book, which actually really resonated with me and I almost didn't quite get it until the end. I remember the launch, you know, sitting there holding the book. We had, you know, a launch where we sold out all the tickets. We had as many people as we were allowed to under the COVID restrictions which was 50 people. Everyone was so excited about the book. We had hundreds of copies. And I kind of realised, wow, this has really happened. And the first story in the book, More Than It Hurts, which is by Caitlin Horan, is so much about self-belief. Like it's a story of an amazing adventure, but her underlying message all comes down to believing in yourself. And I thought, yeah, for me, in the beginning with this book, uh, I didn't, didn't really, I'd sort of worry about reaching out to people to ask them if they wanted to write, write a piece for it. Oh, will it really turn into anything? And I was worried about, you know, going out for sponsors and asking shops to stock it. And I probably wouldn't have had the confidence to do that if Emily wasn't leading the way with that, saying, no, of course we should do this. And so I think realising that, yeah, other people were as excited about this as I was and that, you know, these stories were amazing. The contributors had some incredible stories to tell and there was a huge appetite out there to read more about women's adventure. So I think I learned through the Perfect. process, having confidence in my ideas and believing, believing in it, not being shy or embarrassed or worrying about what if it fails, you know, instead think what if it's an amazing success and plan for that instead. That is a great takeaway, Wendy. I agree with that. And I agree with that in a lot of things in within life as well. Uh, I find during COVID, people are struggling with a lot of things, but a lot of people are also moving in a positive direction at the same time. Yeah, so I, think, I think COVID has forced a lot of people to slow down and reflect. And that can be a really valuable thing to do, even if the reasons you have to do it aren't necessarily ideal. I also see that you do a lot of canyoning. So would you like to talk about a bit of your canyoning experience? How did you get into it? Uh, why do you do it? And uh, what kind of people do you meet in canyoning community? Um, I, well, I actually started canyoning in Jordan, just like with the climbing. And that was, canyoning was sort of an easy one to get into because there was the 
um, outdoor adventure company I'd mentioned earlier that ran regular canyoning trips. So when I arrived in Jordan and had yeah, I didn't know anyone, so I sort of had nothing else to do on the weekends. So I'd just sign up for every trip they had going. And it was, and I loved it. And it was such a nice way to get out and meet people. And like I said before, that was how I met the people I ended up doing a lot of rock climbing with there. And then when I came back to Australia, when I, a few years later, moved to Sydney, and I knew there was a lot of canyons out in the Blue Mountains, so... Yes, I started looking around for people who canyoned. I joined a meetup group. Um, you might know Philip Clegg, who runs a canyoning meetup group. And I got to know him, did some canyons with him and his group, which were amazing. And then from there, met other canyons and went out, you know, with different people at different times, went out exploring. And also this uh, podcast caters a lot of bushwalkers. So if you are about to give an advice to people who have never been into climbing or canyoning what would you suggest how to start how, how to start um i guess it's with both those things it would be developing the basic skills and for example to go out canyoning you, you need to know how to abseil you need some rope safety skills so you could either go on do a couple of commercial trips to learn those skills or look at companies like the Blue Mountains Adventure Company and see what kind of training or skills day they had available. And then, I guess, look to joining clubs or through meet-up groups, meeting people with similar interests that you can go out with. Uh, I think climbing gyms are also a great place yeah, to start, I would say. rock climbing. Look, there's so many climbing gyms these days. It's You can develop basic skills at the gym and lots of gyms will also have regular courses about lead climbing so you can develop your skills in that area. And then I think sometimes it's Great. meeting other people who do the same things and making friends with people who are happy to have a newbie along and show them the ropes. True, I agree. And have you made a lot of lifelong friends from these activities, yes, would you say, I think Wendy? it's a great way to connect with other people. It means you have a common activity and a thing to do together. And I think before I moved to Sydney, one thing I'd realised with some of my social networks in Melbourne, I had lots of great friends, but whenever we caught up, it was always catching up over dinner or drinks or coffee which I mean, which is fine, but I realised that I was sort of missing what I'd had in Jordan, which was friends that our catch-ups were always based around activities and doing something. And so I think that that can become a really great component of a friendship where you have, yeah, the activity you do together. It means you've got more to talk about, more common interests to share, and it make, I think it makes it quite easy for a close friendship to develop when you're in those situations out for a day in the bush together. So true, because when I go canyoning with people, it's so much teamwork. You're relying on each other. You're helping each other out. It's such a camaraderie I find in this yeah, sport itself. And there's no social pressure. If you're sort of just getting to know someone and you sit down for a coffee together you have all this pressure to keep the conversation going whereas if you're out in a canyon there's always things to talk about or you don't have to be talking the whole time
That is such a good point, Wendy. I never thought about it, but that is true because I also know people who have taken their dates out onto a bush. I'm not sure sometimes in a heart, Kenyan, I wouldn't suggest going on a first date with somebody. <laughs> well, they say that in the brain, fear and lust are really closely connected, which is why seeing horror movies is a really great date activity. So probably Canyon works as well, just as well. Terrify someone and they'll realise how attracted they are to you. True, as long as you don't kill yourself in the process, <laughs> I agree. Well, yes, there's that. Uh, I actually used to, when I was single and I was be on internet dating I'd always try and meet other climbers so that for our first date we could just go to a climbing gym and then I figured if we didn't get along at least we got a good climb in. I agree that's a activity-based dates are always good because you kind of break the ice and as you said or you're not sitting mm. in front of each other with a coffee but you're obliged to talk because you're also enjoying an activity mm. doing together it kind of have have a different impact on both parties in yeah. some, so many ways. Yeah, it's a nice way to get to know people. And I feel like through my climbing gym, I've met so many mm. amazing people. And uh, even though I was away for two years, now I come back, I feel connected to those people mm. straight away when we get out and do stuff together. And, uh, yeah, because of COVID, there's been so many restrictions. Mm. Being able to do something outdoor, I find is a really a uh, big mm. blessing in Australia, which is not everywhere around the world is possible right now. Yeah, yeah, we've been very lucky in Australia. Uh, have you ever experienced yourself some sort of uh, danger or have you experienced in climbing or canyoning such situations which really scared you and you thought, Oh, I'm just glad to survive this. Oh, look, I think okay. any danger I've been in or seen people in has been very much danger that could or should have been controlled for. In the, you know, I've made mistakes. I've, you know, I've seen other people make mistakes. Um, I had a friend I saw, a friend once who didn't test his, AT, his abseil device and... So, yeah, he, he didn't sort of wait it or check it before he came off safety and he clipped it wrongly. He, you know, he'd done it a million times before, made a mistake, and it was only someone standing next to him saw as he was about to step off the edge of a cliff, grabbed him and pulled him back. So things like that. And for me, you know, I've made, made mistakes where, you know, I've probably been quite lucky that there hasn't been any consequences I think, you know, at one point on a multi-pitch rock climb, I managed to, it sort of sounds impossible to do, but clipped my safety line into the wrong point. And had I, had I fallen and weighted it, I would have just gone straight down the cliff. So I was very, I mean, it was on a fairly wide ledge, but things, you know, things like that just remind wow. you that you have to, have to keep checking, have to be aware. Um, what else? I once climbed a I agree. mixed. You understand, for, just for listeners, I climbed a mixed climb, which is a combination of trad and sport. Um, so you have some bolts to clip into, but you need to take your own gear to clip in along the way. I'd misunderstood something and thought it was just a sport climb, 
so from the base. Yeah, I thought I couldn't see many bolts, but I assumed they'd be obvious as I went up. And then, you know, did this climb with these massive run-outs because I hadn't, you know, I probably hadn't read the guidebook properly, hadn't looked closely enough at the climb. And so it was fine because I didn't fall. But again, it was a reminder to just keep checking things because if I had fallen, uh, there were probably points where it would have been ground fault. And I find people tend to mistake when mm-hmm. they're tired yeah, as that's well. A big danger. Something yeah. I'm very wary. Yeah, and I think some people have also commented that's something that can make canyons dangerous because it can be very cold. And once people get cold and hypothermic, then they lose the ability to make clear decisions. And if you have to think about one of the memorable uh, outdoor adventure, would you be able to tell our audience uh, about like a story or something you remember that oh. pops out in your mind? <laughs> out of your many <laughs> adventures? I'm trying to think about my many adventures that stand out. Um, I remember the doing Bunny Bucket Buttress, which is a very 270 metre multi-pitch climb in the Blue Mountains. It's all sport, it's a grade 18, so it's not terribly hard, but it's very long. And I remember going out there to do it with my friend Kate. Um, and I think it was our first time doing a really big climb, just with another woman, like we'd always ended up being partnered with men or guys had been in the group. And one thing that stood out to me that day was I know so much of the time when I go out with guys, then, you know, and I guess with, you know, gender roles and and also them wanting to do the right thing and look after people, they'll often, I guess, take the lead a bit. And, you know, you know if you're out, you know, any man I've ever climbed with, I know that they'll always lead the scary pictures if I change my mind. You know, even if they're not actually a better climber than me, if I get scared, they'll step up you know I know there's probably a lot of social pressure on men to be brave in that way and you know certainly times I've appreciated that but it was great being out there with Kate and kind of knowing that we couldn't just pass the buck and make each other do the scary bits if we didn't feel like it we were both yeah both committed to leading our share of the pitches and I think that was a really nice really nice feeling knowing that it's a different dynamic. And I, yeah, thanks I, for sharing that. That's a very different view I, of the I mean, time. Yeah, to be honest, I've done it before with male partners and just swapped leads and, you know, so there was no issue. You know, I had no doubt in my ability to do it, but it was a different feeling going out there, feeling like I was really couldn't just chicken out and make someone else do the scary bits. But it was interesting on the walk out there, we met another couple of guys who were climbing and one of the men was really talking himself up and his ability and reassuring us that basically he could help us out if we wanted. And we got to the climb. I think Kate and I had been <laughs> just ahead of them, but we'd, we'd let them use our ropes for the abseil in. So even though Kate and I had been ahead, we were all walking yeah. to the base of the climb together. And as we get there, the guy sort of steps up, you know, that he and his friend will go up first. And, and you know, Kate gave him a look and he stepped aside and agreed that she could go first. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I have to say, despite all the 
we for the whole walk in, we'd heard about what a good climber he was, and how many times he'd done that multi pitch. And Kate and I shot ahead of them. We we were so glad we had to let them go first because they were slow and they were struggling. Ah, oh, good on you. <laughs> well done. And uh, uh, I was wondering, so your current mm -hmm. life partner, is he also an um, out into outdoors? Yes. He's not so much a climber. He does a little bit of climbing. And he's much more focused on mountaineering. So actually last... Oh, no, nice. year before last, 2018, we travelled to Europe together and climbed, did a, climbed some mountains in the Alps together. So that was pretty amazing. That sounds wonderful. And how does the, having your life partner also into outdoor, how does it play the dynamics in your personal life, as per, I guess I would ask, as compared to having a partner who is not into I outdoor guess so much? It's, you know, the same as sharing any interest with someone, that we have we have things we really like doing together, we both like doing, we love doing it together, and we can plan these amazing adventures together. I think it would be probably quite hard for me to date someone who wasn't so much into the outdoors because that's where I like spending so much of my time. And also that's kind of... You know, that's the way I want to plan big adventures and travel you know, once we're allowed to travel again. So with Peter, we also do a lot of hiking and we have a very similar approach to hiking that we can have these very loosely planned adventures, mm -hmm. just pack our bags, pack food for a few days and head off in a direction, whether it's on an official walking trail or not, and see how far we get. Nice. It's a bit of a planning, but with yeah, a lot more spontaneity. Really nice. um, we keep talking about we want to go and travel around Europe and live in a van for a year. So it's it's nice, nice being that on the same amazing. page about that <laughs> because I think a lot of people wouldn't really be so excited about that. Um, yes, uh, I, I, I get it where you're coming from. I think there's also yes. a nice balance with Peter, my partner, because he's not so into rock climbing, that means we also have things we do quite separately. And I think, so I think we've struck a really nice balance with similar attitudes and values, but a slight difference in activities so we can go and do things separately at times. And I think that yeah, <laughs> I've and you had get your previous relationships maybe suffer from being a bit too claustrophobic in yeah, there's probably one time I dated a, another climber for a while and we sort of ended up on, basically only climbing with each other and it was when I came out out of that relationship. And so I think he was quite happy that way. You know, he's quite shy and he was happy to just have one partner. But, you know, and for a lot of people that would make a lot of sense. But when I came out of that relationship and started mm -hmm. climbing with a whole lot of different people, it was kind of amazing and I realised I was learning different things from different people and my climbing was really advancing very quickly. And so that gave me a different perspective sure. on it. And I'd say there's probably lots of advantages to having partners mm. who are into the same activities, but a few advantages to having some differences there as well. 
I believe in that as well. I think doing things together is great, but having your own time with your yeah. own different set of people as well as it as you said a good yeah, balance is important someone outdoorsy it often comes down to the fundamental values and how you want to live your life that's important true and have you got any um, adventures planned uh in near future yeah. Wendy? are you yes, going to Kosciuszko you mentioned from Kosciuszko through to Kyandra so I think we're planning on spending about six days oh. out there hiking that. So that should be really, really nice. Wow. And then, and then when borders open really up good. again, we've got all sorts of things we want to do. We have our Tasmania trip that we, you know, once we're allowed back to Tasmania, we're going to go and do the South Coast track. And yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Oh, that's on my list as <laughs> well for a while. Things, <laughs> things we'd like to do in Tasmania. Um, and once global borders open up again, then we'd love to go back to Europe. Uh, my partner is, has a German passport. Both his parents are German. So we'd love to spend some more time in Germany. Very keen the to get back to the there. Alps. <laughs> the other day he was putting together a list of all the mountains he wants to climb in the Alps. <laughs> Wow, because I've only seen, I've hiked across Switzerland and I've seen quite some amazing mountains each side of the hike. And I was, yeah, I was yeah. really, really amazed what, how beautiful the areas were. And uh, I did an Alpine pass. So it goes, uh, it started mm. from the side of Austria all oh, the wow. way to Lake Geneva in Switzerland. Uh, 365 oh, kilometer or something like that and to, yeah it takes like 20 days but you can add some extra days and we started at the end of the season so it was started to snow uh, at the end of our track so we couldn't do three passes we tried from each side but there was really thick snow but it was amazing to just experience that whole country in yeah. a different way by walking yeah in 2018 perfect. i did the tour de mont blanc hike which is it's about oh, nice. 170 160 kilometers. Just it's a loop, starts and ends in Chamonix, or I guess you could start and end wherever you wanted, and oh, goes yes. just a mm -hmm. wide loop so through the Alps around around Mont Blanc, and goes th starts through France, Italy, and Switzerland. Oh wow! So oh, it has yes. a lot of elevation oh, yes. as it's well, constantly or is up and down. I think the entire hike, which you do, most people do it in around 10 days. There's a hundred, yeah, sorry, 10,000 mm -hmm. metres of up and up of elevation. So I think most days wow. you have, you often sort of go through a pass and back down again in a day. So it's like you mm -hmm. get up, you climb a thousand metres steeply back down and do the same thing again the next day <laughs> yep sounds like the one we did because yeah. we were pretty much doing a pass every day and some days it was higher than Kosciuszko and we were like oh this is the highest mountain and this is just a pass <laughs> yeah there was a lot of this one that was above 2000 meters yeah 
Well, and uh, did you stay in the huts or did you get into a town? Um, How did you work with the accommodation? I was probably quite lucky because I think a lot of people tend to book things well in advance on this one. I packed a tent and Mm -hmm. didn't book any huts because I didn't know how long anything would take me to hike. And when I'd get to huts, I'd ask them if they had Mm -hmm. rooms available or maybe I'd call them in the morning if I knew where I might want to get to that night. And I think nearly always Mm -hmm. or possibly always got a a bed in a hut when I wanted it. Sometimes it would be the last one. So I think, again, quite lucky because usually things really do sell out. But because I had the tent, I was also able to camp when, when I wanted in some places where there wasn't a hut right? or I was in a town, I'd head to a campground or something like that. And did you did it do it by, by yourself or with other was, people? Yeah, it was on the, on the wow, same trip where Peter and I went through the Alps, but we, we travelled separately to start with. He'd been working, in, he'd gone to Europe for work for a few weeks and so I headed over there, did some of my own travel and then met up with him when he finished work. Nice. And how did you manage food in that? Like, did you carry just yeah, lunches oh, or you we, There were so many huts and places work? selling food along the way on that one that it was, I mean, you could basically not carry anything and always find food if you wanted. Um, I actually, yeah, oh, wow. loads of water, water. you never need to carry more than a litre or two at a time. It's... Uh, the, can you repeat the name of the hike? The Tour de Mont Blanc. Mont Blanc? I'd highly, highly hmm. recommend it. I, think I mean, I've... it's very popular. There's always a million people going through there. So, so even if you do it on your own, you'll probably have a bit of company for lots of it. But it's very, yeah, right. it's very easy I think because I've heard it goes of it. through <laughs> lots of towns. You could easily break it up or not do the whole one. And you, yeah, and if you plan and book huts, you don't need to carry much at all. And what kind of fitness level people um, can do it, you reckon? Look, there's a lot of up and down. So you prob- to enjoy it, you probably want to be confident with your uphill and downhill. But I guess with something like that, there's also the option to just start slowly like I said, loads of huts and places to stay along the way. Mm-hmm. So you could always just start with small, short days and increase distances as you get fitter. True. And do, uh, did you find the track was very well defined or did you have to like have um, a map and come Very, all the time? very easy to what find your way, very well it? marked. I downloaded the map onto my phone. So I ha- always had the GPS just in case, but I hardly needed it. Full hike and just incredible. Like I was, I was blown away. I was expecting it to be nice, but it was beyond what I imagined. Wow. Yeah. And also it goes through all yes. three countries, so also you said. amazing so... food along the way. All the huts have, you know, it's a three-course meal. <laughs> you can buy wine, you know, wine and beer, and it'll be really good wine and about two, two euros a glass or something. So, Wow. 
And was it expensive to I stay in the hut or I'm trying to remember. I think an average cost for a bed and a three course meal and breakfast was about a hundred dollars. For a so a hundred dollar a day yeah. if you have a budget so you can I, I thought that okay. was very that affordable. Good. And then if you have a few nights where you're in a tent and buy some snacks from the grocery store for dinner, you can get your costs for the whole thing down a bit. Yeah, True. yes. And this is no, Australian, Australian dollar, dollar. you talking about 100 or euro? I think. Trying to, I think it was often around That's good. That's good. 60 or 70 euros a night. Uh, some places were a bit cheaper. Mm -hmm. And if you're a member of a mountain hut association, mountain association, then they usually have a discount. What else? Oh, perfect. Yeah, I, I always find in Dolomite as well, if you have uh, insurance and Alpine Club membership, mm. then you get yeah. discounts in quite a few parts. The Dolomites are very much on the list for when I'm allowed back to Europe. <laughs> I would definitely recommend it. I'm addicted. Yeah. The hens, I went there twice on my trip. Yeah. And, uh, which, yeah, which hikes I, did you I, do? I can't get enough of it. <laughs> Uh, so I did uh, Via Alpina, uh, sorry, that's Switzerland, uh, Alta Via mm -hmm. 4 and 5 on my first trip. So halfway 5, you end up reverting to mm -hmm. Alta Via 3 as well. So Alta Via 4 completely, mm -hmm. Alta Via 5 half mm -hmm. and Alta Via 3 half on my first trip. 2018 and 2019, mm -hmm. we end up doing Alta Via 2. But first time we did Via Ferrata completely. Second time we did uh, some just okay. side trips for Via Ferrata. Oh, wow. So, yeah. yeah, and both were very so, different experiences. Uh, via four and five, mostly Via Ferrata. Oh. Yes, yes. So both, so it, it goes from level one, Alta Via mm -hmm. one, up to six or seven or something like that. And it the number oh. means then increases with difficulty. And each Alta Via has a, yeah. just a walking route people can do hiking. And also they can choose to do the uh, Via Ferrata version of that. And also oh, a lot of side trips excellent. through Via Ferrata. So you can go to the hut by walking or you can do Via Ferrata and different challenges, uh, different oh, grading for each Via Ferrata okay. route as well. That's interesting. So, I, I didn't actually understand yep. what all the different numbers on the Alta Vias were. Yeah, just the difficulty. So I think first year when I tried it the first time, had no experience of Alta Via or Via Ferrata or anything. So with the second year, I was a lot more comfortable and it was mm. easier grade as well. So <laughs> I could enjoy it a bit more without worrying every day. <laughs> Especially on our first year, there was a no snow predicted, but a couple of days had a lot of snow. And in Italy, mm -hmm. sometimes you will find there's no wire. Uh, if they might run out a few meters of wire or whatever the reason, there's no wire mm -hmm. between uh, point A to point B. And because of this, normally it wouldn't be hard, but because of oh. the snow, some places were a bit scary because it's looking at three, 400 uh, meter drop and there's a snow on the way <laughs> and you're like, I hope I yeah, don't slip on the way. <laughs> yeah so but it, it's it's mm -hmm. amazing it's magnificent i would say you look across the mountains you have no idea mm -hmm. about the scale after the australian mountains but then you see a hut 
and for another half an hour you're walking towards it it's the same it's still the same size so sometimes those are the kind of things that gives you an idea of the scale yeah. of the whole scenery i would say yeah, yeah definitely amazing. definitely go there if you get a chance well thank you for talking to me oh thank nice you wendy it's been lovely chatting with you uh, and I feel like I got to know a lot more about you through this podcast. <laughs> uh, and I'm hoping to welcome you back again sometime in the podcast after some of your more adventures as well. Thank you. It's great and I really appreciate your time today. Talk to you again soon. Have a great weekend. everyone so much for tuning in to season two episode two of bushwalker's diary i'm really glad to have you wendy today and uh, thank you so much for your time and sharing your stories with the audience here in the bushwalker's diary podcast and thank you everyone for listening in and always looking for feedback if you guys want to share some feedback want to get interviewed on the podcast please let me know you can send me an email uh, contact me through facebook if you know me personally or always you can use anchor.fm website to send a a voicemail if you like as well Uh, we wouldn't be here without your support so thank you again for your support and stay tuned we'll come back with the next episode soon goodbye